Today we are thinking about where our mission as the people of God intersect with our mourning as the people of God. Last Saturday, uh, just before we went to record the online services here in the sanctuary, Katie's phone started buzzing in the church and it were, they were, there were messages, text messages from several of her college friends. And one of those messages was forwarded on from a, a friend of theirs during their college years who lived in uh, downtown Minneapolis. And the message simply began, my neighborhood is burning. It had been sent uh, in the hours previous to that late Friday evening, early Saturday morning. A week or so before that, we had spoken to friends of ours living in Hong Kong, who've been there for many years, and heard from them their own sinking feeling and the feelings of those around them that the city and the country that they love was no longer in existence, that it was slowly being swallowed up by political winds of change. We as a nation have carried with us the heaviness of video footage a week and a half ago documenting the homicide of George Floyd. We've carried with us the heaviness of many similar incidents in the months before that. And there have been, of course, political and social upheaval in the wake of these things. In a matter of weeks, it has felt like our world is combusting, like it's on fire. But for many, for people of color, for people without the privilege or protections that we thoughtlessly take for granted, it's been burning for a long time before we have chosen to pay attention. And that's not okay. How do the members of Jesus' body, how do our communities even begin to formulate a response, though? If we keep silent, we risk sort of tacitly giving our consent to further injustice. If we choose to speak or to raise our voices, we also risk using our speech as weapons that could divide or further demonize others made in the image of God? Where do we take our our anger, our emotion, our confusion, our uncertainty, that sense of heaviness? These are questions that I have been wondering and praying about the past week, and I'm sure all of you have as well. I've heard from many of you this week about, about the heaviness you feel, about the concern you feel about the desire to speak in some way and to move forward as a church to address these concerns. Concerns of injustice, of racial inequality, of division in our nation. It's, it's not new, but is long-standing and systemic. So when I came in on Monday, I began to wonder whether we might need to take a break from our series in Acts and, and to think specifically about these questions in some way. But then I, I actually sat down to read the passage I had marked out on my preaching calendar the week before. 
And it struck me as more appropriate and more timely than anything I could select from somewhere else. By no foresight of my own, our preaching calendar has us at the end of Acts 7, the beginning of Acts 8 today. And it's there that Luke the Evangelist provides an account of how one of the the very first Greek-speaking leaders in the early church, the deacon Stephen, right up. An outsider become an insider, as we said a few weeks ago. We read about how his life is taken away at the hands of the leaders in Jerusalem. What strikes me as remarkable about these verses today is not just the violence or injustice they depict, but what the earliest followers of Jesus did in the face of those things. When the the mission of the church collides with real evil, with real resistance, whether that is racial injustice, whether that is religious or political persecution and oppression of some kind, how do people filled with the spirit of Jesus move through those things together? As we read from the Acts of the Apostles today, my prayer is that we might be humble enough to allow our mission and our prayers and our laments to be shaped by the word of God to us and by the witness of the people of God to us who have faithfully led the church through seasons of groaning and injustice. You'd open your Bibles to the end of Acts 7. Let me pray for us as we look to God's word. Jesus, you say in your word that if one part of your body suffers, whether we are aware of it or not, the entirety of your body suffers with it. Lord, would you make us your people? Would we find ourselves in you this morning? And would we be soft and sensitive to the things that are on your heart And on your mind, Lord Jesus. Lord, may as I I preach this morning, may the words that come from my mouth, may the collective meditations of the hearts of your people, may they be found pleasing in your sight. Pray these things in your name, Jesus, our rock, and the one who redeems us. Amen. I'm going to pick up at Acts chapter 7, verse 54, here in just a second. And this comes at the conclusion of Stephen's speech. Last week, Marcel helped sort of introduce the setting and the context. And here, Stephen has been accused by the people of Jerusalem, in particular the Sanhedrin. He's been accused of undermining the sanctity of worship at the temple there in Jerusalem. And chapter 7 is his appeal. It's his defense. And Stephen says throughout chapter 7 that for the people God called through Abraham, right, the Jewish people, he says that for this people, God has, has called them to a hope and to a future and to a promise. And he goes on to say that that same people God moved and led through Moses to bring them out of bondage in Egypt and into a place of freedom. 
And he says that in the same way that God brought them salvation or deliverance through Moses, Stephen says God is now acting by sending his son Jesus to pour out the full measure of his spirit, the full measure of his salvation upon that same people. But near the end of his speech, near the end of chapter 7, Stephen says that the one God has sent to save and deliver his people, his own people have chosen to betray and murder. And it's with those words of Stephen that are, are raw but are full of truth, with those words, Stephen's own people then rise up to take his life with me at verses 54 through 58. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and he saw the glory of God. He saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears, and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him. They dragged him out of the city, and they began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. Now, given that this is a familiar story to most of us, we we probably already have a sense of of who the good guys and who the bad guys are in this passage. We've got it figured out. We we cringe, we we distance ourselves from the actions of the mob here as they rush upon Stephen in righteous indignation. We have the the benefit of hindsight to to look back at these leaders and, and to see a group of people who forfeited their spiritual authority to lead. We sense their hypocrisy. We know that they've not merely rejected Stephen's voice, but they have shut down the voice of Jesus before him. But I think it's important for us to remove ourselves from that position of hindsight and to place ourselves in this passage in that crowd, in that community, and recognize that that the men who formed this mob were men who were significant. They were respected leaders and voices in that community. They were not anarchists. They weren't spiritual lowlifes. They were men on a mission to protect the law and the traditions that they inherited. And they set out to continue to maintain them. The catch, though, is that the mission that they have adopted for themselves turns out to be in direct resistance to the mission God is now committed to advancing through the person of Jesus. What they thought God wanted and what God actually wanted turn out to be two very different things. So by way of application, let me just state the obvious here. Resisting the mission of God is a very precarious place for any of us to be. 
And if we have any desire to to serve the church of Jesus or to lead the church of Jesus in this moment, if we harbor any hope of being in mission with Jesus as a church, then we need to have soft hearts and we need to have open ears. There are more voices speaking in this moment than any of us have had time to truly hear and to process. For most of us, we need to be committed to listening a long while before we rush to make a response. So often our our tendency and and our response as human beings is, is to defend or to explain whatever position we find ourselves in. But instead, the posture of listening requires attention. It requires sensitivity. Listening takes discernment. It takes time. It takes humility. Too often, though, I could resemble the mob here in Luke, as Luke describes it in verse 57. Look at what the passage says. It says that these men rush upon Stephen. They shut up their ears. They yell at the top of their lungs. And they attack the dissonance before them. And once they succeed in silencing their opposition, they actually discover that they have silenced the voice of God speaking and testifying to them. To be a community in mission with Jesus, we cannot follow this example. We need those who can lead us and speak to us out of the fullness of God's Spirit. That's how the person of Stephen is described back in chapter 6. And so if, if the Sadducees here and their response provide a warning to us about how spiritual communities can veer off mission and end up actually resisting the mission God has for his church, I think Stephen and the community of that first church offer a sobering but an alternative witness to how God sometimes calls us to go forward in mission by choosing to enter into mourning as a part of that mission. Look with me now at verse 59 in chapter 7 on to to verse 3 in chapter 8. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of their killing him. On that, great, on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church, going from house to house. He dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. I want to be careful not to to too directly apply my understanding or my application of this passage directly toward current events. I think it's, it's precarious, it's difficult to dictate how 
any person or any community should respond to hostility or to injustice or to the evils that are done to them. It's especially dangerous if we are not walking that road with them. But I believe the scriptures do provide a unique testimony about how the church of Jesus has chosen to walk through struggles like these. The first thing I I notice in this passage about Stephen is the way his, his character, his person, stands in contrast to the mob that surrounds him. And we're told in particular that Stephen is a man with spiritual sight. Right? The mob is described as hard-hearted, as deaf to the truth that God is speaking. But Stephen is one who sees the realities of heaven from his vantage point still on the earth. Verse 55 says Stephen is able to look into heaven and he is able to see the glory of God there. Stephen sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And despite all the violence directed toward him, despite all the distraction and discouragement of that moment, Stephen's gaze, Stephen's worship, Stephen's identification with Jesus himself is never interrupted. In fact, throughout this passage, it only intensifies We're told back at the beginning, uh, at the end of chapter 6, that that as Stephen addresses the Sanhedrin, even his opponents see in his face the the reflection of glory, uh, of that of of an angel, it says. I think part of that spiritual vision that Stephen possesses, that identification with Jesus, is what enables him to respond as Jesus would. Not only is Stephen fearless in proclaiming the truth, fearless to name where the truth of Jesus has been ignored among this crowd, but he is able to respond in the way Jesus would. He offers mercy to his persecutors. Look at verses 59 and 60. Stephen's last words are nearly identical to the last words of Jesus. Lord, receive my spirit and do not hold this sin against them. For anyone who suffers injustice, mercy is never something that we can require or expect or demand, right? Mercy, by its very nature, is undeserved. But mercy offered to the most vile, to the worst of sinners, is always the way of the people of Jesus. A community that is in mission is a community that chooses mercy. And I think that the black church in America has consistently demonstrated and, and exercised and testified to this mercy in the way that they have offered forgiveness to those who do not deserve it over years and decades and generations. The Chinese church in Asia consistently demonstrates and witnesses and testifies to this mercy as they choose to forgive those who do not deserve it. 
We need to choose not only to give mercy to those who've hurt us, but as a community, we also need to choose to ask for that same mercy for the many times that we have done the same. So the community of Jesus, as it enters into this time of injustice, right, is keen in its spiritual sight, in its identification with Jesus, in its worship. They exercise mercy as part of their identification with Jesus. And then finally, we're told that despite the risk that it brings to them, in verse 2, these godly men buried Stephen and they mourned deeply for him. Right? That community of the first church didn't hastily retreat from what took place. They didn't fight back in their anger. But Luke says they did mourn. And they mourned deeply. As commentator Craig Keener points out that mourning a condemned criminal at this time and place, right? The Sanhedrin had condemned Stephen in his death. To mourn his death would have been to break the law. It would be to endanger their own safety. But they risk being dragged off by Saul to prison in the act of mourning and burying their friend. It's a risk that they were willing to take on his behalf. As I've read through the headlines this week and scrolled through my social media post, my sense is that there is an enormous amount of grief among us, but I'm not sure that all that grief has been acknowledged or dignified with mourning. What has been suffered needs to be acknowledged. What has been endured cannot be excused. And we need to allow for, we need even to go out of our way for, maybe even to, to take risks like Stephen's friends do here as a church, to open up spaces and times to mourn and lament what is not good and what should not be. And then to add to that lament our prayers that God would begin to bring steps of healing. A few weeks ago, our church gathered in in small prayer clusters based on the communities we live in, and we we prayed for our community and our mission in this unusual season that we've been separated and split apart. And in the week ahead, I'm asking that our church would come together in the same way again, that we would have another concrete time of prayer set aside in those groups. But I want us to, to take that time of prayer to bring the heaviness we feel, to bring the lament that we carry or that our neighbors carry, that we hear voiced in our community and in our nation, and to bring those things simply into the presence of God with each other. And in that space of prayer, we don't have to justify or defend what it is that we carry, but simply lift our voices to heaven and listen as our brothers and sisters do the same with us.